So, at the start of chapter 9, the Israelites are on another high. They, we saw in chapter 8 how they dedicated themselves to obedience and following the word of the Lord. But now, chapter 9, they're going to be put to the test, aren't they? Now, they, we will see whether they actually do follow the Lord. So, chapter 9. Now, the chapter starts with two very opposite responses, doesn't it? The Israelites arrive in the land, and one group immediately seeks to attack them, to make war against them. Now, the Israelites are still camped at Gilgal, where they apparently returned after the destruction of Jericho. Now, they've not pushed any further into the land yet, but now the majority of the tribal leaders start planning to come together to fight against Israel to try to push them back. Now that's one approach. But the Gibeonites take a rather different approach, don't they? They decide to act somewhat craftily and they come to Israel with, with deception. Now why do they do that? I mean, we're told in verse 3 that what motivated the Gibeonites was their knowledge of what God had done to Jericho and to Ai. But when they come to Joshua, they tell him a rather different, different story, don't they? Now, Gibeon was only about six miles north of Jericho. I mean, they could have strolled over and seen the Israelites in an afternoon, but they're going to pretend they've come from quite a long distance. So they dress themselves up in old clothes, put their oldest, most cracked wineskins on the donkeys, patch up their sandals, and present themselves as having come from a journey. But why? Why do they take this approach rather than trying to join with their neighbours and defeat Israel? I mean, after all this agreement they're seeking with Israel, it's going to place them at somewhat of a disadvantage, isn't it? I mean, they're, not, they're going to have to share their land and they're going to be somewhat the junior partners in this. So why seek peace? Why seek this permanently almost subservient position? I mean, after all, we're not told they asked it in any special terms. They set no conditions for this alliance at all. In fact, their only interest seems to have been to secure an agreement with Israel as quickly as possible. Now, if you want to know the answer to that, we actually read it in verse 24 at the end, at the end of the chapter. It said, they were clearly told what the Lord God commanded his servant Moses to give Israel all the land, to destroy all the inhabitants from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid of our, for our lives. So, Gibeon acted this way because they knew. They had, had knowledge. So they come to Israel pretending to be ambassadors. Now, when foreign ambassadors come to you, what's the natural response? 
the actual response is to be generous, to be open, to try and make a good impression. I mean, certainly in later years, we find that Hezekiah took the same approach, didn't he? Courting foreign ambassadors that came from a far country. And he would also pay a price for his, for that kind of approach, for his vanity. Now, Israel sent spies into Canaan to try to determine what the land was like, to find out what was going on. But it seems the traffic wasn't all one way. And the surrounding tribes, including the Gibeonites, knew exactly what was going on. They knew what Israel was going to do. They knew that Israel had been charged by God with wiping out the inhabitants of the land. And of course they saw what happened to Jericho and Ai as proof that Israel was capable of doing this. I mean, this is significant because Gibeon was not exactly a small defenceless village. It was one of the royal cities. It was one of the places in in Canaan, you would expect to put up a defence. And if Gibeon was afraid to make a stand against Israel, what was the likelihood of success for the other nations? Now, the Gibeonites certainly knew that Israel was going to wipe out the inhabitants of the land. But it seems their intelligence sources told them rather more than that. because of the, the approach they took. Why choose that approach? Why ask for a covenant? Now, you may recall, or you should do, that shortly before his death, Moses made a long address to the Israelites where he recapitulated the law of God. He told them how they should respond in the land, how they should live there. Now, this is all largely recorded for us in Deuteronomy. So if we turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 20 for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 20. And we're going to read from verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 10. When you go near a city to fight against it, then, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be, if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, that all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourselves. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. But the cities of the peoples which the Lord your God shall give you an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. So there we have Moses' instructions. The principles of warfare that were to govern the conquest. 
those tribes inside their new borders must be wiped out to preserve the purity, the religious purity of Israel. But the cities which were far away outside the land, they were free to make a covenant of peace with them if they wished. So how did the Gibeonites know that cities far away they could make a peace treaty with and those inside the land they were to wipe out? They must have had spies coming in and talking to some of the Israelites maybe. They would um, have heard what was going on. There's no other way they could have known even the extent of the land that Israel was going to conquer. But whatever happened, they did their homework and they knew what proposal Israel was most likely to accept and how to make that proposition seem appealing to Israel. Now, there's one more aspect of the Gibeonites' approach we must consider. And this could be the most deceptive of all. When the Gibeonites set out to deceive Israel, they didn't just use the physical evidence, the mouldy bread, the worn-out clothes, they didn't just use their knowledge of Israel's military victories or the plan Israel would use to conquer the land. Look again at verse 9. Joshua chapter 9 and verse 9. We've for a far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. So they said they came to Israel because of the fame, the name of the Lord their God. They spoke to them about their God. In fact, they pretended to respect and honour the name of God, saying they'd heard of his name, the power of his name. It suggests almost they were coming to profess it and embrace the religion of the Israelites. In effect, they were, they were pretend, pretending to offer themselves as proselytes. Now, does all this remind you of anything else? Where have Israel dealt with the Hivites in the past? I mean, we know from verse 7 here that the Gibeonites were Hivites. But where's the first time we hear about them and Israel's dealings with them? Way back, Genesis chapter 34. Do you remember chapter 34 where Simeon and Levi decided to make a peace treaty with the Shechemites, who were also Hivites? But they offered them a peace deal, and then they went and killed every one of them. Now, in what we consider today, the outcome's going to be a little different. So much for the text anyway, but um, none of us are likely to be called to determine alliances between nations. But there are principles here that can be applied to every situation we encounter. The Israelites needed to make a decision about what they were going to do with the Gibeonites. And what can we learn from their response? Well, first of all, in verse 8, Joshua asked the Gibeonites who they are and where they live. In verse 14, we find the Israelites examining the Gibeonites' provision. Before finally, in verse 15, they conclude the um, covenant. 
Now, you might conclude at first glance these writers were not faultier. They examined all the evidence presented to them. I mean, they looked at all the mouldy food, they held it in their hand, they crumbled it to make sure it was actually mouldy. And they had this very convincing story from the Gibeonites about these rights past victories. I mean, they asked all the right questions, didn't they? Where do you live? Where do you come from? And yet, as first 14 advisors, they failed at the most important point. They didn't ask counsel of the Lord. I mean, they didn't ask the high priest to get out the Urim and the Thummim. They didn't even suggest it. I mean, if they'd if they'd asked the lords, the Gibeonites' fraud would quickly have been discovered. And this is, of course, a bit like us, isn't it? We're often, when we're presented with a decision, we ask the right questions. We weigh the evidence that we can see. And these are good things to do. You shouldn't jump into things. You need to weigh the evidence. You need to inquire about every decision. But if we don't pray and don't seek wisdom from the Lord, just like the Israelites, we're going to run into serious problems. You know, on the surface, the Israelites had a simple decision to make. And after all, they would have known what, Mo what Moses had told them they can do. They knew they were permitted to make treaties. And all the evidence they were presented with backed up the claims. And yet everything was fabrication, it was lies, it was flattery indeed. I mean, their mistake was relying on external appearances. And this is the same thing that we can do today, isn't it? When we call to make a decision, we might assume the answer is obvious. Maybe we've faced a similar situation in the past, or the evidence we're presented with appears to be too plain to be refuted. I mean, common sense and experience are important tools that God has given us. But if we use them apart from the wisdom of God, Ultimately, we're going to come down to failure and defeat. Just like the Israelites here. I mean, it didn't take them long to work out they made a terrible mistake, did it? There's only a few miles from their present location to where the Gibeonites were based. So what did they do? When the Israelites worked out that the Gibeonites were so close to them, how did they respond? I mean, you might reason that this, this oath of peace they gave to the Gibeonites could be safely ignored. After all, it was gained under false pretenses. I mean, certainly many of these rights appear to have thought like this. They were complaining against their leaders for not attacking the cities of Gibeon. So why didn't they? Why didn't they just wipe out the Gibeonites after all? Well, there were other considerations here, weren't they? I mean, they'd approached the Gibeonites with an oath. They'd given them an oath in the name of God, and breaking such an oath would be dishonouring the name of God. It would give the impression to the nation surrounding them that God was untrustworthy or deceptive. So the leaders of Israel reasoned it was better to deal with the consequences of their sin rather than trying to pretend it hadn't happened and just carrying on. And of course, this is something that strikes very close to home for us. We all sin, and sin isn't without consequences. 
While we can and should repent and seek forgiveness for sins, there are often still ongoing consequences that must be confronted. And things that need to be worked through before we can move forward. As believers, we need to seek the wisdom from God to discern how we can live obediently to his word in the midst of frequently messy situations that we created for ourselves. Now, what are the Gibeonites here? I mean, despite their lying and their deception, God was merciful to them, wasn't he? They weren't wiped out by Israel. Indeed, ultimately, they were made to serve the God they'd professed to um, admire. They became woodcutters and water carriers for God's house. I mean, their lives would be hard, lives of service, but they're going to be near the things of God. They were going to live lives where they couldn't escape from hearing about God and what he had done and what he was doing for Israel. I mean, what was being offered to get the Gibeonites here is an opportunity to join Israel, effectively. They were going to be given an opportunity to trust this God for themselves, which was actually the very thing they falsely claimed to desire earlier on. But they were being given the opportunity. So there's much here that we can take home <coughs> and meditate on through the weeks. This is not just a plain historical record, this is put here for our instruction. So first of all, we can talk about the importance of living a life of continual prayer. We need to bring every decision, in fact, before the Lord, and always seek to live in accordance to his will. We know there can be times where we're tempted to rely on our experience or to assume we know the right course of action, yet we always need to come before the Lord and seek his will. And then, sin and folly has consequences. I mean, these events we've considered tonight will play out largely over the last few, next few chapters of Joshua, continuing with the conquest of the land. Chapter 10, you have the southern conquest, and then in chapter 11, they move on to the northern half, northern half of Israel. But it isn't actually until 400 years later that the final act of the Gibeonite drama is played out. I mean, you may recall how King Saul decides to do what Joshua would not do and destroy the Gibeonites. He's another one. Breaking that oath did not work out well for him either. So we don't want to be like Saul. We want to seek the wisdom of God as we seek to honour him in our lives. Lives that are too often stained and complicated by the results of our sin. But finally here, we can say that God works out his redemptive purposes despite the sinful acts of men, despite our failures. I mean, in this situation here, Israel sinned, the Gibeonites sinned, yet none of that de um, defeated the purposes of God, did it? Israel would still go on to conquer the land. The Gibeonites would still be brought close to the worship of God. God's purposes were fulfilled. God said they would conquer the land. And even if failure at this point does not, does not affect that, the purposes of God cannot be stopped. I mean, God is never surprised or concerned. His plans were established before the foundation of the world. 
and they're being worked out every single day. So when we sin, we fail, even when it looks like the world is spinning out of control around us. These things do not surprise God. His kingdom continues to grow, believers continue to be sanctified, and the good news goes out to all the kingdoms of the world with ever-increasing authority. I mean, the Israel of God grows every single day. This is a kingdom you can't get out of. If you're truly saved, you remain saved. And death doesn't take you out of the kingdom, so, that, so the kingdom of God grows and continues to grow every single day. Christ will have his bride. Nothing can present, prevent the ultimate worldwide success of the gospel. And we have to look at this. We have to judge by the promises of God, by what God has said he will do, rather than being swayed by our sins, our failures, or the latest newspaper or television headlines. So we must learn to adjust ourselves, to align ourselves with the will of God, to look to him to guide us. And when we sin, we know, yes, there is forgiveness freely available, so we can repent and return, and then what do we do? We try to live faithfully in the wake of our mistakes and to go on trusting God every time. <laughs>